Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to a special five-part podcast series sponsored by Stone Turn. A word about Stone Turn. Who do you turn to when you need assistance navigating the emerging risks around the pandemic or help enhancing your compliance program? Who do you turn to for on-demand compliance resources and expertise? Turn to us, Stone Turn. Since 2004, council corporations and government agencies have turned to the global advisory firm Stone Turn when facing their greatest challenges. Make Stone Turn the place you turn for advice on regulatory, risk, and compliance issues, investigations, and business disputes. In this five-part podcast series to celebrate Corporate Compliance and Ethics Week, we will consider each of the six elements required for an effective compliance program as laid out in Stone Turn's Six Elements of an Effective Compliance Program. These six elements are risk assessment, governance and structure, policies, procedures, and controls, training and education, oversight and reporting, and response and enhancements. Over this five-part podcast series, I will be joined by Stephen Martin, Valerie Charles, partners at Stone Turn, and Toby Ralston, Jamin Tyler, Managing Directors at Stone Turn. In this episode three, I visit with Toby Ralston on controls, policies, and procedures as the backbone of your compliance program. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I have with me Toby Ralston, Managing Director at Stone Turn, and we're going to take up the topic of policies, controls, and procedures. And although uh, many people don't think of these as anything other than geek topics, Toby and I feel very differently about this. So, Toby, first of all, welcome, and thank you for, so much for taking the time to visit with me. Well, thanks for having me back, Tom, and, and I'm happy to geek out on, on this stuff. So, Toby, let me just start off by asking you, why do you see the code of conduct as a foundational component of any compliance program? Sure. Um, it, it is foundational. Uh, for most organizations, the code is is, is, is kind of the baseline. Um, it, the code's different from other organizational guidance in a number of ways, but as you and I have discussed on, on previous podcasts, Tom, um, in our view, the code should be more of principles-based than, than rules-based. Um, I think what we find is effective codes are ones that set expectations of the behavior you want your employees and your stakeholders to abide by. It's sort of the, the collective moral compass, if you will. Um, it's, it's not a running list of the rules that you expect them to comply with. Tell me, how does the, the policies tie into the code? Are they, do they explain what's in a principles-based code? Do they help give expansive definitions? Uh, I think we're probably far enough away from written by lawyers for lawyers. How do you help a client think through what should go into a policy? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I, I I think you're right. I think where the code and then the deeper policy is somewhat of a, a pivot point. Um, I'm, I'm somewhat reluctant to make a, an iceberg analogy here, um, but I think it, it's somewhat appropriate. Um, your code's often what's visible. Uh, it, it, it may be publicly available on your website, uh, but your underlying policies are, are, are the roadmap um, it's, it, you know, to how you conduct your business. Your policy library provides the operational direction that ensures consistency and integrity uh, to your everyday business processes. Um, although, Tom, I'm, I'm now realizing the iceberg analogy is, is probably a terrible one. Um, 
<laughs> your policies have to be readily accessible to everyone in your organization, uh, so you shouldn't need a snorkel to find them. Well, uh, let's talk about that accessibility because the Department of Justice has, uh, as far back as 2012, made that absolutely clear. They've talked about translations. They've talked about how it should be written uh, in plain English. They've talked about uh, presenting it in a way that's not simply a Word document or a PDF. So I was wondering if you might get your thoughts on really accessibility and how you can uh, you you as the compliance practitioner can help make the code easier and policies as well easier for an employee who's trying to do the right thing to access and understand. Yeah, this is this is actually a really timely um, discussion point. Um, we're seeing a shift in demand in the marketplace in this regard. Um, for what felt like decades, organizations took a boil the ocean approach to their codes. Um, they were they were written really with regulators in mind. Um, and I don't mean to suggest that the world reverts back to the wild, wild west with their codes. Um, but what we are seeing is a shift towards uh, back and you know towards an employee focused codes that aren't a hundred pages long. Um, you know, and um, an employee centric code is one that embraces your organizational values um, and it creates a sense of belonging for the reader. Um, now, as you and I just touched on, you'll still need your code to refer to your deeper policy guidance. Um, and you'll need to be crystal clear on where that information exists, but it doesn't all need to be jammed into the code. <clears throat> and secondarily, Tom, I think you, your question around um, translation um, and attestation are, are good ones. I'll, I'll address uh, the translation issue. Um, I think you're doing yourself, you and yourself and your organization, a tremendous um, uh, favor by by making. Um, your code available in as many languages as is sensible. Um, doing so, I think, demonstrates your commitment to your employees. Um, the one, the one drawback that I would I would highlight for any listener is, um, you know, translation. You know, providing providing translations is important, um, but be very careful to select proper translation providers. Um, unfortunately, we've seen this go the wrong way. You, you don't want your policy to be misinterpreted because of a bad translation. Tell me, let me change the focus just a little bit to internal controls. Uh, I have called internal controls the backbone of your compliance program. Uh, I'm not sure how you might feel about that, but uh, could I start off by asking you how should your internal controls be tied to your risk assessment? Absolutely, and I wouldn't disagree with uh, with uh, your your uh, summarization as a, as a as the backbone. I, I would I would tend to agree, um, and I think most listeners uh, on on this podcast will be familiar with the notion that internal controls are used to mitigate risk. Um, if your internal controls are poorly designed or they're not operating effectively, uh, your organization is going to be left with too much residual risk. Um, and, and oftentimes that comes at the cost of a tremendous amount of energy, dollars and other resources being spent dealing with the fallout of not having the you know, properly aligned uh, internal controls. Um, so I, I, I think fundamentally I would argue that if your legal and compliance team doesn't have a seat at the table when it comes to uh, the periodic assessment of enterprise risk, you're behind the curve here. Um, it's time to get involved and it's time to reassess what internal controls you have in place. 
Uh, you really said, I, I think, a couple of very interesting things. First of all was residual risk. The second was that your controls will be misaligned. But the third I found actually perhaps the most intriguing, which is the entire efficient system will be inefficient. And that people, uh, I think, worry about or they don't understand that you can make your controls more efficient if you perform a gap analysis, if you tie it to your risk assessment and really look at your risks and the risks that you have to manage. Is, is that a message that you find resonates with your client base? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think uh, aligning, um, aligning these processes so that you are, um, I, I almost can make it analogous to, to <laughs> I don't know why, but I'm picturing a ropes course and having the nets in the right place. Um, you know, the, your, the internal controls, if if uh, if mapped uh, correctly, Tom, um, will will really save yourself a lot of headaches. And and frankly, it's one of those you know, that approach in terms of evaluating how the coverage works from your internal internal controls. Uh, that that enables you to uh, to dive into what the DOJ is getting at, which is continuous uh, improvement and monitoring. Uh, Toby, as you know, I'm a lawyer. Many chief compliance officers have a legal uh, training background or legal profession background. Many compliance professionals have a legal uh, background, and they tend to see internal controls, or at least they think of internal controls as financial controls. But I've, I have learned, I should say, that's a very short-sighted uh, approach. And so I was wondering if you might discuss some interest as some instances of non-financial compliance internal controls and their importance sure no and and not unlike you you know by by having a, a cpa you know by being a cpa um, by by background um i certainly was was sort of in the same camp you know financial controls used to be the end-all be-all um but i in in, in uh, working through some some monitors, some corporate monitorships, um, and as well as working um, to help enhance um, uh, compliance programs, uh, we found that non-financial controls are often in place to, you know, to mitigate those operational and reputational risks. Um, in fact, your organization likely has procedures in place, and you may not have thought about them as serving as an internal control. Um, one area where we've seen um, a heightened concern about the existence of, or in many cases, the lack thereof, of non-financial controls is in the supply chain. Um, has your organization considered the depth and availability of backup vendors should a preferred um, or major supplier be impacted by the pandemic? Um, do you have those processes in place, those internal controls that are, uh, that are gonna help you uh, align a, a backup vendor? Um, one might argue that a non-financial control are somewhat leading business indicators, whereas the detection of a poorly operating financial control may come way too late in the game. Um, one of my favorite stories of a non-financial internal control is there's actually an FCPA enforcement action where the SEC held board of director oversight was an internal control. It also held that your code of conduct was an internal control. And frankly, I had not thought of those two as internal controls. So uh, the, the lesson I learned from that case, Toby, was that really when it comes to internal controls, we're almost only limited by our imagination. If we have a way to process something, put a second set of eyes on something, to have an appropriate level of oversight and review 
can be override, once again, with an appropriate level of review. That can be an internal control. And that's really the message that I try to communicate to compliance practitioners as well. Totally agree, Tom. Document, document, document. Um, you know, I, uh, this uh, the notion of, of really anything, any processes that you have at your organization that can be woven into your overall uh, compliance program um, will only serve to, to benefit um, you know, future improvements and, and, and compliance as a whole. Toby, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, uh, but I was wondering if any of our listeners wanted more information on any of the topics you brought up today. Where could they go? Yeah, as always, um, you can find find us at stoneturn.com. Um, and then I myself am always available. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Well, Toby, this has been a, a great exploration of policies, controls, and procedures. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks as always, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. If you'd like more information on Stone Turn, check out their website, www.stoneturn.com. I've also linked to it in the show notes. I hope you will join us again for another episode in our five-part series on the six elements of an effective compliance program. I know you will find it useful. This special podcast series, sponsored by Stone Turn, is a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.